So it was probably about three years ago that I, or maybe four years ago, I was contacted by an old friend who had grown up kind of in our college ministry, and he wanted to call and give me an update, but also thank me. And I didn't know if I really wanted to receive that, and I didn't think I was necessarily worthy of it. Uh, but he said, you know, when I was a college kid, I didn't want to go on this trip to Mexico, but you said I should go, and you talked me into it. And I was like, well, don't blame that on me. But that short-term mission trip to Victoria, Mexico for a week as a college kid turned into being a career missionary. He had spent time in Africa, thought he was never coming home. He had two kids. They were battling malaria. They came back, and he was back stateside and trying to be a missions pastor, but he had this this bug, this itch in him to get overseas. And um, he called me to say, I just want you to know where my life has kind of gone since you knew me as a, as a college kid at the University of Alabama. And he headed over uh, to Indonesia about three years ago. And at that time he has four kids, now he has five. They are living in one of the most Muslim dominated uh, places on the planet. Uh, with very, very little support, and they are raising five kids, and they are doing such an amazing work. And so I, I tell you that because I have this vested interest, and every month I get these kind of updates from how's it going on the field. And sometimes I think I have it hard. Sometimes I get a little discouraged, except that I have friends, and I have a culture, and I have uh, a body of believers um, and people that, uh, you know, English is a native language and all these things. So um, when I read their, it's, it's convicting when I read their updates, but I got an update uh, from them and I just needed, I felt like I needed to bring it to you because it sets up what I want to talk about tonight, uh, but it kind of interrupted me in sort of uh, how I was doing and how I was praying and how I was trying to respond. And, and it said this, uh, on May 20th, we woke up like any normal Sunday morning and prepared to go to church. And right before we left, we got the news that suicide bombers had attacked three churches in our city. Much of what they send out is kind of cryptic. They can't be too specific because it's sensitive and things get read and they'll get found out. It's illegal to be essentially Christian missionaries um, in, in Indonesia. And so the next morning, we would awaken to more suicide attacks in our city, which is constantly moving, and it was shockingly silent and still. People hid in their homes waiting for the next report of bad news, wondering why and how these parents could be willing to use their own small children as suicide bombers. The three churches were hit by one family. The father drove his car into a church and blew himself up. Moments before, he had dropped his wife and two daughters off at another. The girls were 12 and 9 when they walked up and blew themselves up. And then their two teenage sons rode a motorbike to another church and blew themselves up. Everyone was in shock and heartbroken. And so the question I'm wrestling with is, what do you do with your salvation? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean when Paul writes that we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? 
there is this idea about this faith that I grew up in that coming to faith means I got to go, I got to pray a prayer, which now meant I get to go to heaven instead of hell. And I just have to believe that there's way, way, way more to it than that. And if you've listened to me talk at any length, you know that I have a strong affinity, a strong conviction that we are supposed to be ambassadors for ushering in heaven on earth, that eternity has already begun and we get to be part of God's salvation. So the idea that you grew up with a static faith and just trying to avoid hell is a misnomer. And if you're sitting here wondering, why is it that my faith feels the same as it did as a child? I'm sitting here trying to say, what does it mean for us to take next steps and express uh, faith in a way that leverages it for the benefit of others, but maybe forms Christ in us, that maybe transfers it or gives it away to someone who's not quite as far along in faith. But there is this living faith that I believe that we are called to live into. And the thing that happens is that it is both internal and external. There's something that's supposed to happen in our hearts. There's something that's supposed to break for all the right reasons. But if you're like me, you like to insulate your heart. You like to callous up your heart because you don't want to be too affected. And I would contend that a lot of people are looking for a fight because they're not in one. So we have a lot of people being outraged. We have a lot of people shouting and ac accusing. But I would contend that maybe we're not in the fight that God has invited us to be into. I think there's also something external that's supposed to happen that we can actually be people who actually bring restoration to broken marriages and we can bring help to needy families and we can bring encouragement to people who are just at their, at, at their loneliest moments and at their neediest moments. And so when you look at the children of Israel, what did salvation mean to them? Because you have this covenant uh, that happened with Moses on Mount Sinai. We know it as the Ten Commandments, which got expanded to 613. But what was their salvation experience? Well, they were delivered out of Egypt. So there was a very physical, external kind of salvation experience. They were no longer slaves anymore. And then their salvation also meant that after going through the Red Sea, that they would be given guidance. Pillar by, a pillar of fire uh, by night, which also provided warmth. It was a cloud by day, which also provided shade in, in, a, in a hot desert. But God was guiding them. He gave them an inheritance and a direction and a future. He fed them from starvation. There was a very tangible way that these people were working out their salvation. And yet there was something in their hearts that was also being transformed. These were God's people. And so they were being seeded with hope. They were being seeded with a sense of growing amount of justice. And God's word to them again and again was, don't forget that you were once slaves in Egypt. Don't get so far removed from the larger story of your life that you somehow forget that everything you have is actually from me. And so there's this inward and outward kind of salvation that I think we all need to work through. And so as God's people, we are constantly trying 
to invite God's rule and reign into our hearts, into our lives, so that we might align with him and become people of hope and people of justice and people of mercy and compassion and generosity, and that our acts begin to shape our hearts because that's what's on the heart of God. Um, And so this is the world that God actually intended. Salvation means that we get to seek and restore a life and a world as God intended, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of crisis, even in the midst of human stupidity. God is still at work and he's still inviting us. And so let me just finish. This is what Jess wrote. It's Jess and Todd and they're living in Indonesia, but she kind of says, so what has been the response of our church? Exactly one week later, we were standing in our church and we were worshiping the Lord together and declaring his goodness. Two weeks later, we sat in our church with a room packed full of Indonesian believers for a training on reaching unreached people in Indonesia and the world. Ibu Rossi, who was our Indonesian teacher and was our translator for the crisis care training, um, she's just now been asked to direct a crisis care team in our city and help people uh, and train churches to respond in these situations. And her comment, Jess's comment, was that the Lord had been preparing a response even before we knew the need. We are not discouraged, but encouraged and passionate about advancing the kingdom in times like these. I mean, when I'm seeing that kind of faith, I'm seeing that kind of vision, that kind of hope, I'm like, okay, this is what we're called to be and to do. This is why the church exists. I wish, I wish we could come with a kind of anticipation, a kind of hopefulness that God is going to show up. And I know it feels like, oh, I got to go to church. Oh, it's so hot. It's so nice. I'm so comfortable right now. And yet you guys came. And now I'm inviting you to come with a hopefulness. In fact, get in that practice on your way to church. Be praying about desires. Be praying for God to move. Be asking for the Lord to give you a word. There is something that God wants to do in meeting in this place that is actually extraordinary, that is actually supernatural. And I don't want to get lulled into the belief that we're just checking a box because it's time for church again. And you could see that in your kids. So I'm being inspired by people, the, the church universal, the church globally around the world who are battling battles. Their needs are simply different than my own, but it inspires me. It inspires me. Oscar Romero, who was a priest, and he was working in El Salvador, was speaking to all these people. There was huge class violence, not unlike we have here, except it was more violent. And he was speaking to a group of young people. In fact, he was eventually killed in the middle of a mass that he was leading. But Oscar Romero spoke these words to all of these young people who were wanting to raise up arms and go against the government and go against the elite wealth of their day. It was sort of like their own 1% uh, you know, uh, kind of class uh, rebellion. And, and they were wanting to go to arms over it. And he said these words. He says, you have already lost your faith in love and believe that love cannot solve anything. And here's the proof that love solves everything. If Christ had wanted to impose his redemption through armed force, he would have achieved nothing. 
It would have been useless. There would only be more hatred. There would only be more violence. There would only be more wickedness. Why? Because violence always begats violence. We need to learn from history. Accusation begats accusation. (laughs) It is painful to watch the news stories. It is painful to watch the news cycle. And I don't know about you, but it makes me want to build the kind of friendships in Austin and seek the welfare of the city like never before. I'm like, I'm tired of the news cycle, but I can grow friendships with this foster family in my neighborhood. I can can invite... um, we had a party on Friday night, and it was great fun, but maybe the best part about it wasn't that it was kind of celebrating my wife. I think maybe the best part was that we got to extend friendship and ask for the help of our Burmese friends. We, we were doing kind of a roll-your-own sushi night, and a bunch of them have worked. I guess if you're just generically Asian, you get qualified to be a sushi chef. Uh, and so they came, and I was like, you can make some, but teach us and help us. And I love the reciprocity that friendship has, right? Because what do we say? Sometimes hospitality is making room for people and other times it's learning to receive. And I want to grow my friendship because I want to actually ask them for help too. And uh, somehow it makes the world feel a little better place. So tonight I want to talk about salvation because we're trying to work out our salvation. We talked about salvation as acceptance and understanding who we are in light of who God is and, and Tonight, I want to talk about salvation as refuge, as a shelter, uh, in light of violence, in, in, in light of alienation, in, in light of broken homes. Um, sometimes it's a physical violence, like an actual suicide bombing, and sometimes it's an emotional uh, refuge that, that we're looking for. Uh, but when we talk about a living faith, when we talk about working out our salvation, I want to have this picture of God as our refuge. So let me just share, see if any of this sounds like your faith experience. I have a few verses. If, if you want to um, just jot some notes, there's some things you can kind of scribble down on the, on the bulletin tonight. Uh, or if you want to, if you've downloaded the app, I updated the app and you can kind of follow along there. And um, I got some message notes and some blanks uh, that you can fill in. But let me just share uh, salvation as refuge. And see if anything, any of this sounds a little bit like your faith experience. Because I want us to understand who God is, his character and his nature, so that it can grow um, our ability to call on the name of the Lord. So that it can grow our intimacy, like, like, a, like a thesaurus that you get equipped with. But it says in Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So do you battle fear? Do do you battle anxiety? Um, how, How is God a stronghold of your life? Is God simply a fallback option or is God a leading option? Is God a God of last resort or is God um, a motivational force in your life? Because if fear becomes the dominant narrative, if anxiety becomes the, the prevailing motivational force, 
we're missing, we're missing out on so much of the richness of the joy of our salvation. Um, and let me just say this up front. I think that, that we're not only saved from something, we're supposed to be being saved to something. And I'll unpack that a little bit more. In Psalm 37, verse 39 and 40, it says, the salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and he saves them because they take refuge in him. What do you do with your trouble? What do you do with your financial trouble? Does your financial trouble cause you to be stingy or does your financial trouble cause you to be more generous? What do you do with your marital struggle? Does it cause you to retreat or does it cause you to want to seek help? There, there, what do we do with our struggle? What do we do to relieve stress? What do we do with the obstacles in business? It's really easy to get into struggle and trouble with business and cut corners. And yet God's calling us to be a righteous people. Um, this is a, another one. It says, but as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. See, if you describe your faith based on your experience with God, what words would you use? If you had to talk about the difference Christ is making in your life, if you had to talk about the character and nature of God as revealed to you personally, what are the attributes? What are the nature, the character, the personality qualities of a living God as revealed to you? Because the worst thing you could do is just occupy church in a generic sense. We want to cultivate a living, personal relationship with God and have words to describe it. Um, battle after battle uh, and having been delivered from his enemies from Saul here's what David said the Lord and this is in 2nd Samuel uh, chapter 22 verse 3 he says the Lord is my rock my fortress my deliverer my God is my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation he is my stronghold, my refuge, my, and my savior. From violent people, you save me. See, what's really amazing is the whole story leading up. There's only about 26 or so chapters, but by the time he gets to verse 22, so many kind of transitions have happened. He's been on the run. People have wanted his crown, including his own son. People have been calling for his life, out to pursue him. And I think I've had a bad day. And yet he comes and he says, and it would be like saying, well, how was your week? And you're like, oh, don't get me started. How did it go for you? And you're like, it sucked. It was awful. And he's like, oh, no, God is my rock and my fortress. And you're like, what? Um, aren't there people after you? Don't people want your head, including your own son? I thought I was having family problems. You have family problems. Now, let me just unpack a couple of key words in this. I bolded them so that you could see. He talks about the word shield, which is directly translated. The Hebrew word says sovereign, which is a very biblical word that doesn't necessarily come up in our vernacular too often. But the way I like to define God's sovereignty is this. God remains in control even when I feel out of control. I like 
to control outcomes and results. And yet, I am so out of control with how my kids actually turn out. My kids are both away this week, and I have no say over how they live their lives. My son's going to college. He's going out on his own and has to decide whom he will serve and how he will live and who he will surround himself with. There are things that I want to control, and I can't. I can't. I can't control what happens in Washington, and I can't control who might crash into me on the way home from church. But I choose to trust in the sovereignty of God that transcends the circumstances of my life. Does that mean check my mind at the door? No. Does that not mean like set really clear-cut boundaries, have really clear-cut priorities? No. I have all those things. But at the end of the day, my faith and my hope rests in the Lord, even in the midst of hardship. That even though circumstances don't go my way, I will not lose hope. I will not lose faith. I will not place my faith in the circumstances of my life, but in the reality of God's presence, even in the midst of despair and darkness in sickness and in disease. And then the other key word that he uses is the horn of my salvation. Again, never a word that I would choose. So I'm like, <laughs> horn of my salvation, except that if you've gone into battle as many times as David has, the horn represented that you weren't actually alone. What you did tonight, without even meaning to, is you got in your car and you started driving and what you were doing was blowing the horn of your salvation because what the horn represented in battle is that you're not fighting alone, but that there is an army with you, that there are people standing in a shield wall with you, that you are going into battle and it does not have to be alone. And the minute we can really embrace the nature of true community is the minute we can actually feel fortified, that God is my fortress. What does that mean when we sing a mighty fortress is our God, except that we're gathered as the saints and we put a premium on being in rich and current fellowship with one another and that becomes transformational so that I'm limping along maybe it's spiritually or maybe it's maritally or maybe it's as a parent whatever the case might be but I come and I find people because I'm sitting here blowing the horn I keep doing this like it looks like I'm drinking I'm trying it was a it was actually like a ram's horn it was like a shofar that they would blow in battle and people would gather it's how they destroyed uh, when they blew quote trumpets to destroy the walls at Jericho you know, it's like the Ricola guy in the hills of Switzerland and, and just the, the sheep come running or the soldiers come running. That broke down somewhere, but I'm just going to keep going. Um, one of the conversations, uh, and so he, he talks about being the rock um, and fortress and deliverer in whom I take refuge, my shield. Are these ways that you would be able to describe your experience with God? Because there are people in your neighborhood, there are people, maybe a, a co-worker space, that need to hear the difference that God is making, that you can articulate your salvation because God has been this for you. 
and you didn't even know it. But now I'm connecting the dots. You know, one of the things that I've been um, kind of wrestling with is when I, when I talk with Jonathan and I talk with Grace, these are all some of our Burmese friends, and um, many of the parents are struggling with raising their kids, in, not just in America, um, but in a, in a foreign culture. But here's the problem that I see, is that when you grow up in occupied Burma, and what I, I, I say occupied Burma, it's military rule. So you're always staring at the end of a machine gun. You have no rights, and if you came, like a lot of these people, like our friends, came from the hill country, there's no running water, there's no electricity, um, <clears throat> there's no formal education, unless you go down to the flatland area, in which case, you become extremely vulnerable to being arrested, to indentured servitude, uh, and just straight out persecution. So when you wanna gather for church, that's actually an illegal activity, and you have to want it, and figure out how to find out about it. And modern conveniences, like having an app, or sending out an email, uh, or, or running billboard ads, are not, uh, are not actually something that, that works in a country like that. And so, well, what you do is you have family reunion, and they gather for worship. Or you meet out by the river like you're doing some kind of lake party so that you can actually baptize people. But you can't actually say aloud publicly what you intend to do. So I'm just thinking, if I grew up in that environment, I'd have to want it. And yet, they're trying to raise kids in America, the land of plenty, the land of opportunity, and the, the, the place where there's no sort of resistance, if you will. And I think that represents the greatest challenge for these immigrant parents raising their children in the US, is that when you grow up with so little and having to want it, and having to work hard and cherish it and appreciate it, appreciate the value of the church. And then now you're there like, oh, I can take it or leave it. And you consume it like you do your favorite restaurant. You're like, ah, it's not, I like the music better over there. Or ah, I like the preaching better over there. Or, I, I, li I like the guac better there. As much, uh, the, the, the table service is better over there. And, and this is what happens. And we subtly get lulled into this consumer Christianity. And by the way, there's nothing transformational about a consumptive faith alone. Like, I think there's stuff we're supposed to digest. There's supposed to be stuff we take in. Except God invites us to be in this hmm, death-defying act where we die to ourselves daily. We say yes and be willing to take next steps. So God, as our refuge, refuge offers shelter. So how do you shelter your heart? How do you guard your heart? If God is our refuge and we want to fortify our hearts and we understand that we have to guard our hearts because it's the wellspring of life, do you filter stuff out of your life? I mean, do you watch anything that comes on? Is there just no... Um, no filter for what you would allow in your home. One of the things that we raised our kids with is we just said no to practicing violence in any video games. We tossed them all, or we never even accumulated them all, but he'd go over friends' houses and I'd say, sorry, bud, uh, I, won't, I won't allow you to, to practice violence in killing someone else. And it, you, know, you wanna do Mario Kart, um, if, if you wanna do any of the sports games, fine. But we will not practice violence. 
any more than I would show my kid pornography so that he could practice exercising that kind of activity in, in his brain. There was something that we wanted to sustain. And so when we say God is our refuge and we want to work out our salvation, one of the things we're trying to do is guard our hearts so that we can guard our lives from the level of violence and sexuality that's permeating our culture. Garbage in, garbage out. That, that, that's, that's the name of the game. And parents, blame it on me. Pastor Dave says that we should love you more than all the other parents. And that's what we told our kids. Well, they just don't love you as much as we love you. That's, anyway. Um, refuge is, um, feel safe. Uh, is your faith secure or do you just wrestle with lies? Um, lies and doubts and fear. And to that end, what are you doing to answer the questions? Refuge allows for rest. And when I say rest, I don't mean inactivity. I don't mean being lazy, but being at rest is being at peace in the midst of storms. So how does God's presence in your life allow for rest in the midst of your work day? Is there a growing awareness of the presence of God? Is there a check in your spirit? Is there a kind of governor, internal governor, that helps you guard your words, your heart, your mind, your hours, so that you're yielded, saying, God, I give you my time and and." and I trust you with the rest. I think the thing about being in refuge, God is our refuge, means we're saved from being paralyzed, though we're not being immune uh, from doubt or despair, hopelessness. We're being saved when God is our refuge from being racism and negativity and skepticism as the dominant narrative of our life. God is our refuge means that God, in fact, sees, cares, and is, in fact, near. But I think God as our refuge means we're being saved to compassion. We're being saved to the needy, to justice, to mercy, to protect vulnerable, to be strength for the weak. Um, I'll share this one story just in closing with you is uh, a few years ago, uh, my parents live in a beach town in California called Santa Cruz. And one of the kind of hot spots, you have to know Santa Cruz, it's a very territorial culture when it comes to surfing. You think of surfers as laid back, but actually um, a lot of surfers are a huge like jerk factor and this get off my wave and, uh, and like there's a pecking order and fights go down in the water. Uh, but so there's some very territorial spots and there was a four to six foot swell, which was nice surf. Uh, and I took out my niece, who was uh, about 16 or 17, and my son, who was about a year or two, uh, and, and they were going to go surf. Uh, we had two boards, a couple of wetsuits, and I was just going to be kind of planted on the cliff. And that's the thing. It's, there's a lighthouse, there's the cliff, and then there's the rocks. Um, so, okay, bad choice by me. It's not ex exactly a beginner break. Uh, probably shouldn't have been there, but the swell was good. It seemed harmless. We'll figure it out. You got flotation devices. There's other people around. Anyway, so I kind of send them off. Well, Kylie, my niece, uh, had like surfed like once before, and and Buren had only been out a few times, but he was a, a little bit more competent and competent. Uh, the next thing I know, uh, Kylie is down there, and I'm still back at the truck, but. Um, Kylie uh, is trying to paddle out. The surge is pushing her into the rocks. The waves are crashing. She's now taking shelter. Her board is broke. She's covering in this little cleft of the rock, literally trying to get away, but there's a cliff. You, she can't get out. 
Um, she's, she's paddled out far enough that, that she's trapped. And this surfer comes over with his longboard and starts calling her. He passes on this really good set of waves and decides that compassion matters, that care is, is important. And he starts going over to her. Next thing I know, this guy is yelling and, and it's, you know, it's probably 30 feet down and I'm just watching him as uh, with him and his longboard paddle probably uh, three to 400 yards with her um, to this stairwell down, down the way that she could actually get out of the water. She's shaking, she's scared to death. She's scared to death. Um, but here's the thing that occurred to me. This surfer paddled out just to enjoy himself, except that he found so much greater purpose in being the savior. He was her refuge and her rock. He was her salvation. He, in that moment, could care less about his own experience with good waves and saw someone who had a need and rescued her. And, you know, he got out of the water and he wasn't mad at me for being a delinquent uncle. He wasn't mad at her for being in the wrong spot without enough skill. He had a bounce in his step. It's like we made his day. And he felt like he was able to give, right? And you think, well, any normal person would see someone in need and go save their life. Yeah, but in a group of people, it's hard to be the one that answer, actually answers the call. There's actually lots of studies that show that in groups, there's paralysis that occurs. People always assume that someone else will help. Someone else will stop. That someone else is better at that. Someone else is more gifted. Someone else has life-saving. Someone else has rescue breathing. Someone... And this is what happens spiritually, is that God became our salvation. So how then do we become someone else's salvation? I gave you a very physical life and death scenario, but I think spiritually we encounter that kind of stuff all the time as well. So let me pray with you. Let me just ask you to bow your heads and we'll just want to give you a couple of thoughts as we close in prayer here together. I just want to give you some thoughts about what does it mean? Because I keep asking you the question about God is your salvation. How would you describe God? Is it as a refuge? Is it as fortress? God as healer? God as provider? God as your strength? Have you found God as a refuge? Where do you run when you're stressed, when you're anxious, when you're financially stretched? Where do you go when times are good, living in abundance, free from crisis or loss? Where do you go emotionally, mentally, spiritually? How have you met God, or have you? And then the second part of that I just would ask is, to what extent have you or can you be a, a refuge to another, to be a shelter? 
If God is our refuge, how can we also be a shelter for those who are in need, vulnerable? How might you work out your salvation by simply standing in the gap for another? God, I thank you for how you have met me in a real personal way. I thank you for how you've revealed yourself. Father, I ask for your forgiveness when I think I know better, uh, when trust becomes an issue, when fear dominates my motivation. But I pray that uh, as I, as we see your faithfulness in our lives, maybe you could shape us into being that and working out your salvation through us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the needs already in front of us. Uh, pray that you would give us pause, regardless of the schedule and the pace, regardless of the hours that we keep, uh, or the needs of the kids. May you uh, break our hearts for that which breaks yours. May you make us sensitive to your justice and to your mercy and to your compassion, to your care. May we be stewards of heaven on earth and um, become people of hope and mercy and justice. So God, we sing and we declare your worth. We, we want to meditate on your promises. We want to declare that you are our fortress and our rock. I pray that our lives would be hidden in you.